Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to invite you, please, to join me uh, by turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. And as you find your way in here to Genesis chapter 11, I want to welcome uh, those who are worshiping in the Family Life Center as well as those who may be worshiping with us um, off of this campus, somewhere else tuning in, to turn in your Bibles as well to Genesis 11, because today we come to a conclusion of a series, don't we? For the last 12 weeks, I believe, we have been, it feels like the last 12 months, doesn't it? I know. For the last 12 weeks, we have been um, immersed in the stories of Genesis 1 through 11, and in just a moment... We're going to read through the last uh, text, the last passage that will be uh, our final concluding part of the series. Um, but as we do, we begin with um, a word of prayer. Let's bow together. God, we recognize just as our um, worship has already attempted to proclaim, there is none like you. And Lord, if we forget everything else, we can't forget that. Because you are seeing your daughters and your sons gather in this place and in places all over the world today to, to worship you. And, and yet, we confess with our worship that we have attempted to ascribe value and worth in a hundred other gods besides you. Uh, the God of materialism and the God of selfishness, the God of ego, the, the God of our own making and our own naming. But we confess to you that there really is none like you. None as patient as you. None as strong, as wise, as merciful as you. And even now, as we gather in this place, we bring before you all kinds of burdens. We bring pain and, and we bring heartache. We bring our doubts, our questions, maybe even our fears today, God. We do. We, we bring them right into your company. Because we have recognized in our journey with you thus far that you would rather us bring everything that we are and everything that we are not rather than to put on a mask before you, rather than to somehow pretend uh, that we really don't need you when we say we do. So in this hour of worship, we confess to you that we need you more than even our words can describe. So we pray that you would remove from the shoulders of all your worshipers right now any burdens that keep them so weighed down that they cannot see or think or encounter you. Open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear you in ways that, that transforms the way we do life, God. 
even now as we open up your sacred word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are going to make our way through uh, a good portion of text today, and it will come from Genesis 11, 1 through 9. But instead of reading all at once, today we're going to move through together uh, in little bite-sized chunks. How's that? Today, I do want to tell you, if this is the first time you're with us, I want to encourage you to go back and and, um, pick up on some of what we have attempted to say these last uh, 12 weeks together. Because we have been in Genesis 1 through 11, which we have said for these many weeks, is a different kind of Bible. It's different than the rest of the book. This part of the Bible is not attempting to be science. It's not attempting to be history. It's attempting to do something in the heart of the reader. It's a, it's a book of theology. It's a book of belief. It's a book of faith, these 11 chapters, because they're filled with images and with persons and, and with um, stories that are intended to stoke and provoke our imaginations so that we might be able to have faith. And we have said from the very beginning that this This text comes to us rather late in the game. It comes from around the late 6th century B.C., during a time of great suffering, during a time of exile, when we believe that in a time when quite literally the world around the exiles had collapsed, it was in complete chaos all around. In the midst of that kind of world, there emerges these old stories about how God once long ago looked out over the chaos and began to blow a wind, the wind of his presence, of his spirit, the ruach of God, the breath of God over the chaos so that it might divide and order might come out of chaos. And we saw in those first two chapters that God designs a world, he creates a world in which humankind and God are intended to to coexist with one another. And out of the nature of God, out of God's uh, community, the Father, Son, and Spirit, out of that sense of God in which God cares for God and loves God and serves God, out of that pours forth creation in, in the hope that we who are created in his image might act like him, that we too might love one another and serve one another and humble ourselves before each other and be merciful to one another and and submit ourselves to to each other. And in those first two chapters, we get a, a design that gets painted in our minds of what life like that could look like. But then chapter three comes. And in chapter three, we find ourselves reaching for fruit that we were never meant to consume. And we live outside the boundary freedom that had been established for us and we choose our own way We always do. We always choose to step outside of the boundaries of freedom that God has created for us. And when we do, it creates a falsehood of our existence. It creates a sin, a rebellion that separates us from God. And we saw in chapters 4 and 5 and part of 6 how all of humanity from that moment forward and from this moment forward continued to spiral more and more into a decay, a kind of debauchery and rebellion to the point that we get to that very tragic verse in Genesis 6, 5, where we hear these words that all of humankind, the hearts of all humankind were inclined toward evil 
continually. And God in that moment decides to uncreate the world, remember? And so he, he initiates his great undo in which he destroys all the planet and yet in the midst of that great story of destruction we recognize he finds one family worth rescue. And now suddenly there's a twist in the plot and it's not a story about the destruction of the world, it's a story about rescue from a world of destruction and we find Noah floating in what we call this kind of mobile repotting experiment where God repots, resoils the soil of Eden and allows it to be replanted after the flood in attempt number two to recreate the world, to give it another shot and Noah emerges from the ark as a kind of second Adam. And we saw in the last two weeks that now life begins to emerge once more. And we read in chapters 10 and 11 a kind of genealogy, a kind of table of nations where we read about the expansion of humankind after the flood. But we come to a passage today that is very familiar to, to many, the story of the Tower of Babel. And we typically read this story this way, that this new humanity, after the flood, decides to build this tower skyward to the heavens, that God puts a stop to the construction process, scatters their languages, and sends them into the utmost parts of the earth. That's kind of a, a simple reading of that passage. But I want to suggest that a close look at this story of the Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel, will reveal something not just about them, but about us. So to move through the passage that we're about to read, I want to give us three words, three words that indicate the three different movements that we're going to have together today. And the first one is this, name tags. The second one is this. Echo chambers, and the third is this, the Mobius Strip. To move us through this sermon today, I want you to think of name tags, echo chambers, and the Mobius Strip. First, name tags. Begin reading with me, will you? In chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth, had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And, and, and they, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and, and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So we're told that the civilization had expanded. They had moved, according to whatever version you happen to read, they moved eastward or they moved from the east, doesn't matter. They're expanding, they're growing, and they're getting smarter. Now they are advancing with their technological capacity. They now have kiln 
baked stones, better bricks. And they make better bricks. Their technology was advanced, which means that they were now on the cutting edge of technological evolution. And one of the very first things that they create is this, what's called a Babylonian ziggurat. A ziggurat is kind of a, 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 a stared structure, kind of a pyramid-looking structure in which you, you climb to the top and it's usually used for worship events or some activity of worship, which I find provocative in the story. Here they are on the cutting edge of technological evolution. And the first thing that they make is an edifice of worship provoking the question, God did, didn't ask them to build this thing. What are they worshiping? Do you know that they wouldn't be the last civilization to worship their technology? But the point of the story is not so much what they built, but it's why they built the story of the Tower of Babel begins with a desire to make a name for themselves. There is power in a good name. One year in VBS, there was a little girl who came up and she had, you know, you put those stickers, those little name tags on the kids, you know, to make sure you know who they are and make sure you get them with the right parent afterward, you know. Little name tags. Well, this little girl, the, the sticky on her name tag had lost its stickiness and had fallen off. And she was visibly upset about something. The teacher came up to her and said, what's wrong, sweetie? What's the matter? Why are you crying? She's just weeping. And she said, I lost my price tag. <laughs> I lost my price tag. Yeah. There is value value in a name of course the best price tag story the best um, name tag story I've got to tell you is one that happened when Laura and I led a marriage retreat at another church years ago we were very new to the church and we didn't know everybody really and they didn't know us very well only in name you know so I said to everybody at the beginning of this marriage retreat I want everybody to fill out a name tag and put it on your name tag your first name but then I also want you to put something underneath it like something that's distinct about you something that that is unique that would help me remember something about you so they did so Tom put Tom uh, I work at the bank Roger, I built my own home. Okay, got it. But the best one, the best one was Laura, y'all. My wife, Laura. She, she put, uh, Laura, I sleep with the pastor. <laughs> they didn't forget that. <laughs> So I've got like a 14-year-old like and a 16-year-old in the Family Life Center slinking underneath the seat in front of them right now. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. It's okay, guys. It's all right. There is value in knowing who you are. You know what the book of Proverbs says about it? Proverbs 22 puts it this way. Better is a good name than great riches. Better to be esteemed than silver or gold. The story of the Tower of Babel begins with this desire to make a name for themselves. 
It's in verse 4 there. Let us, let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered everywhere. The trouble with that is that they already had one. I mean, not technically. They didn't already have a name that they could put on a, a name tag. In fact, that'll come like next chapter, chapter 12 and beyond, that when they get a name and they follow uh, Abraham and they become the people of Israel later. You know? But right now, they, they may not have had a name that went on a, a name tag, but they had an identity. They, who were attempting to build a tower to the sky in order to create an identity for themselves, they already had an identity. They were created in the image of God. And when they were created, and when you are created in the image of God, you have an identity already before you do anything to earn one. You're created in the very image of God, which means you have the capacity to live in this world with some company. God is within you, and you can live life and do life in a way that resembles the behavior of God. You have identity. I love what N.T. Wright, a great theologian, in talking about this passage, about the people of the Tower of Babel, about why they would somehow need to build this tower about identity, this tower of making a name for themselves. This is what N.T. Wright had to say. He said, while humanity had a mission to reflect God, it had been distracted by its own reflection and was both fascinated and fearful of what it saw. It was fascinated and fearful of what it saw. Do you realize that you and I can look long enough into our own reflection to become so distracted that we become simultaneously fascinated and fearful of what we see? When we look in the mirror long enough, we can become fascinated. We can say, my goodness, look what we can do. I mean, have you seen what we can do? I mean, it's fascinating the things that we can do, the, the, the towers that we can create in this 21st century. Man, it's, it's fascinating to see what we can do. But you keep looking long enough, and you not only are fascinated, you become fearful because, oh my gosh, what if I don't keep building this tower? And what if I stop with the construction process? And what, what if I stop producing and proving myself? And what if I stop winning? What if I stop succeeding? Will there be anything in me worth mattering at all? And I say that on a morning like this because on this campus, in this room and the other room down the hall, I'm, I'm just telling you, as your pastor who loves you, I know what it's like now to live more than five years in these zip codes. And you can look good. And you can drive good. And you can go home to a good home. And you can have a great job. And if you're a student, you can have a string of AP courses ready to pave your way into college and you can have the starting position on whatever team. You may have everything that you were supposed to have to be where you are, to have the name that you have, and yet at the same time, strangely enough, feel absolutely worthless inside.
the tragedy of the Tower of Babel story is that they already had a name. Before they proved that they were worth it, their name was beloved, and so is yours. Who are you when you have nothing to prove? Because the truth is, you and I typically build our identity on a strange kind of math. I don't do math very well. We didn't, we didn't do a lot of math in seminary. But I can tell you this, we do strange math when it comes to identity. You know what we typically do? We typically build our identity by addition. We think that if I, if I keep on adding to my life, I'll add to my resume, I'll add to my net worth, I'll add to all the things that you're proud of and that you brag about to your friends. If I can add, 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 then I will be somebody one day. When the true mystery of faith is this, it requires a different kind of math. It requires subtraction. It requires stripping away everything that we were told mattered in order to get down to the one thing that really matters that we've had from the very beginning, which is the unfettered love of God in you right now. Do you want a name? You've got one. Beloved. Sometimes we script name tags that sound and look better than what we actually have. When the true source of salvation means stripping off the sticky to find what we really have. Because true identity is not like a, a tower we build. It's like, a, it's like a treasure we discover. This is why Paul talked about it. In the New Testament, Paul said, look, I did everything possible to have the best reputation you could possibly imagine. And in Philippians 3, this is how he talked about his own resume. He said these words, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I mean, he's kind of a cocky guy, isn't he? If anybody's confident, I have even more reason to be confident. It, he goes on to say, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was this kind of elite tribe within the people of Israel, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, you don't get more zealous than this. I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless, he says. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as a loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is the best line of the whole passage. He says, more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Next line. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. Can we just sit with that for just a moment? I regard them as rubbish. Everything else that I've attempted to build, these towers to the sky to impress everyone else, I consider it all rubbish. But you know what the King James says? The King James had a great way of translating that word, 
They translated it from the Latin. This text comes from the Greek, and so it came up with rubbish. But do you know what the King James translated that word as? Dung. The King James, I counted all dung, which was because it was the strongest word that they could think of in their vernacular at the time. So this morning, I want you to think of the strongest word that you can think of when you think of the word dung, because I'm not saying it, Diane. And listen to what Paul says. Everything that I have done to build up a name for myself, everything I've done to conscript this name tag, I count as dung. It's all rubbish as we continue. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Beloved, I'm just here to tell you, you've got a name. And you didn't write it. And you don't have to keep it up. It was established from the dawn of time. You are beloved by God. So there are name tags, but there are also echo chambers. The verse continues, I believe, in verse 5. Listen to these words. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they all have one language. And this, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. I love this part of the passage. In fact, I love the first part, the nuance of the first phrase, that the Lord went down to see the thing. They had built this tower that they were proud of, and the Lord went down, which is interesting. Here they are at the cutting edge of technological evolution. This is the biggest, the baddest thing that they could create. I mean, it was the edifice that had reached higher than anything else that had been created, and it was the top, man. It was the absolute top achievement of humankind, but the text is on purpose when it says God still had to come down to see it. No matter how sophisticated we get, no matter how lofty our success, no matter how big we get for our britches, God still has to come down to see what we have come up with. There used to be a song, didn't there, Glenn? A Go Gaither song. Uh, he came down to my level when I couldn't get up to his. God is always coming down to see what we're up to. We call that the incarnation. In the incarnation, we say that in Jesus Christ, oh gosh, there was this thing, this thing happening. The universe knew that there was this kind of force, this this. The entity, this being, the Greeks call it a word. The, the word, the philosophy that existed that kind of held everything together. But the word now in Jesus Christ, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen him. And beloved, if the word became flesh and dwelt among us then, and the Lord is still alive because of the resurrection, then the Lord is still becoming flesh and dwelling among us even in this very moment. The Lord will always come down to lift us up. 
But what's fascinating about the text is that there's a little bit of tension in there. It looks almost like God feels threatened. Oh my goodness, we better, we better shut down this project or they'll make their way past the boundary place. It echoes a little bit of Eden, doesn't it? Remember in Eden when God planted two trees and said, you can have all these trees, but not these two trees. Because the assumption was if they eat of these trees, they'll know everything we know. In the same way, there's that echo here. But what's really fascinating is that when God does go down, in fact, you might even think of it this way. There's on purpose a reference to boundaries again. Because we believe that this text may have emerged earlier during the time of the Solomonic Empire when abuses to power necessitated telling stories about minding our boundaries. So here is God in this story saying, listen, there are some places where you can go and some places that are too far. So he comes down and he looks around. Do you know what he sees? He sees them clustered together in this tower. There they are, all clustered and cloistered together in the same spot. In fact, the language is powerful. It says they have the same language. They even use the same words. They told the same jokes. They wore the same clothes. So much sameness, just this homogenous community of sameness. Same, same, same. This kind of babble bubble. The bubble of babble. God comes down and looks at it for a little while, and, and the text is written in a way that is meant to provoke our memory of chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, God said, no, 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 the creational design that I have in mind is this. Go. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Go. Shoo. After the flood, when Noah comes out of the ark, he says to the second Adam, Noah, he says, okay, we're going to do this again. We're going to try this all over again now. Go, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The creational design in the mind of God was that we go. And here he comes down and sees what we're up to. And when he comes down to see what we're up to, he sees that we're up to the same thing we've been up to for a long time. We hang out with the same people. That's kind of our comfort, isn't it? We run with the same people. We dine with the same people. We, we like to do life in zones of familiarity. That's, that's kind of an instinct, kind of a survival instinct. But the trouble was, and the trouble is, that when we give ourselves to these, these homogenous communities of sameness, sameness lends itself to sequestering. Sequestering uh, lends itself to uh, tribalism. This is us. That's them. Tribalism lends itself to circling the wagons, circling them up, boys, circle the wagons so no one gets in and no one gets out. And circling the wagons creates echo chambers. That's an interesting word, echo chamber. Do you know what an echo chamber is? It's an enclosed space where in that space the only thing you hear is the reverb of your own voice. 
and you speak, and the only thing that you hear coming back at you is your own voice or voices that sound like your own voice. Now pinch hitting. Echo chambers. Do you know the trouble with echo chambers? It creates a theological dilemma for you and me. God never condemned the Tower of Babel. God never condemned like, a, like, a, like an inspector that comes in expecting to see the permit. And sorry, this doesn't meet code. You can't. God didn't com- condemn the tower. God condemned staying in the tower. Because when you stay in the tower, when you live in sameness, you know what happens? It doesn't just comfort us. And it does. It's okay. But it tarnishes our our view of God. Because when you live in an echo chamber and the only thing that you hear and the only thing you see is what sounds like you, what, what believes like you, when you only hang out with people who look like you, think like you, believe like you, vote like you, do life like you do, then the only thing you hear back is that same thing mirrored back. You never recognize that the God who created the world created a diverse world. And each one of us, follow this theologically for just a moment. Each one of us represents a unique aspect of the character of God. Uh, that That means your experiences and your story, your pain, your celebration, you have a unique version of your encounter with God. But if you lock yourself into a tower of our own creation, an echo chamber of our own voices or voices that sound like our own voices, then all we see reflected back is the character of God that we already know. Which means we limit our capacity to see a big old God. What if the church... was the place where we rediscovered diversity again. You know, there's an interesting line in this this text. It says here in verse, I think, 7, let's try this. Come, let us go down and confuse the language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. Usually we interpret this part of the story as God is angry, and so we've been too prideful, so God's going to punish us by making us uh, speak different languages. And then says, shoo, go. The truth is the word that's used there for understand in Hebrew is Shema. Shema is the word that means listen or hear, as in the, the, the Shema of Israel. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? Hear, hear, listen, listen. That's the word that's used in this text. He confused their languages so that they couldn't listen or hear one another. What if God was up to something by making it so difficult for them to hear one another that they had to learn how to listen for one another. We have lost the art of hearing each other today. We have lost the ability to abide in the same space and have courageous dialogue with someone who is different than us because we are afraid of what it will present or what it will confront us with but what if we were to think about God stirring the languages so that 
we have to try to hear each other. You know, this is how the church was born, you know. The church was born at a listening session. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, all the Jews who had gathered from all the different regions of the world spoke different languages. No one understood each other. And yet, in that moment, there is this, well, this wind. You heard that before? That sweeps over the chaos. And tongues of fire fall upon the people, and they speak different languages. And usually, you and I interpret that story of the day of Pentecost as the great miracle where everybody spoke in tongues. But the real miracle was that everybody could hear and understand and listen to each other finally. What a miracle it would be today if the church were to recapture the identity of our birth, of being the body through which the Spirit of God speaks into this world in such a way that we hear each other all over again. Come on. Which may mean that you have to change the channel every once in a while. Listen to the other guys a little bit. May mean that you have to set a place at your table with someone with whom you'll have an argument and yet you won't resolve the issue but you'll leave better for it because you have attempted to hear something since Babel. Yeah. So we create name tags of our own making. We, we build up towers in which we hear the echo of our own perspective of God. And maybe that's why the third movement of the sermon is needed. The Mobius Strip. You know what a Mobius Strip is, right? So a Mobius Strip, discovered or thought about or introduced in 1858 by Mobius, uh, Frederick... Uh, Mobius was his name. Uh, he had a middle name, I can't remember. A Mobius strip is just this. You can make one. You pull together a strip of paper on each end. At the last minute, you turn the edge of one piece around. And I'm just going to tape it here so I can show you something. Should have asked for some like uh, Mobius music here. This time. All right, all done. A Mobius strip is a piece of paper with one side. You see it? There are no two sides to this paper. B.F. Goodrich, by the way, patented a belt, a longer lasting belt that lasts twice as long because they turned it into a Mobius strip utilizing both sides rather than one for a longer-lasting belt in your car. You're welcome. But a Mobius strip is just this. It's a single-sided piece of paper because if you trace your finger along it, you're on the outside of the paper for a while, and as you stay on that same surface, you'll eventually become on the inside of that circle. Stay on it long enough, and you show back up again on the outside. It's one continuous side. Did you all see that back here? You didn't? Watch this. So it's a Mobius strip. You trace it along one side. 
And as you stay on the same surface without lifting your finger, if I could do that, you end up back on the other side, in and out, right? Parker Palmer, a writer, minister, Quaker, you need to pick up everything you can get your hands on on Parker Palmer and read it. Parker Palmer said that our spiritual life is like a Mobius strip. Because the purpose of the spiritual life is, yes, we do make the journey inward through prayer, solitude, time with Christ, abiding, reading scripture. We move inward. But the purpose of moving inward is not to stay inward. The purpose of moving inward is that the journey inward eventually becomes the journey outward. Are you with me? Somebody say yes. That means that when we move to the interior life through prayer and study and solitude with Christ, moving into the interior world in which we abide on the inside is intended to empower something that creates fruitfulness on the outside. You abide with Christ, as John 15 says, you abide with Christ on the interior life so that it cultivates the soil of your soul so that your exterior life produces fruit. That's how it works. The trouble with the tower was not that they wanted to live together in familiarity and in comfort, that they, they wanted to build a tower, a name to themselves, even though they already had one. The trouble was you can't move in and stay in. The point of moving in is to move out. And that's true for individuals as well as institutions and churches. I mean, the reason every day you need to spend some time alone with the one who made you is so that when you move out of that time, you go and you do life with your community in a way that's informed and transformed by it. But in the same way, the reason you come to church here is certainly not for the preaching. The reason we come to the church is because when we move in, when we move inward in the community, when we come into this tower for a little while, it strengthens us. See, this is sacred ground. In this place, we celebrate the birth of children. We dedicate babies. We celebrate the, the waters of baptism and renewal. We, we have funerals in here, and we grieve tragic losses. And we gather for worship in which we sing and we imagine through sacred scripture the world looking different than it does right now. But the reason we move inward is so that when we imagine a world as it was originally designed and can once more become, the point is that we would move back out. That's why every Sunday I say to you the most important part of worship is when we stand and scatter out of here. So that when we leave this place, we scatter with all the grace and all the, the mercy that we've encountered, the strength that we've been able to muster by being with, with one another. We scatter in this place. We move inward in order to move outward. So I just want to ask, is it, is it possible today that you are at a place where it's time to be deliberate about the motion of your life? Move in. Move out. Maybe today is the day that you pray a prayer similar to this. Lord, I recognize how much of my life I have been attempting to write my own name tag. 
I've been building these towers to the sky in order to somehow prove that I'm worth a name that you've already given me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Help me to remove the sticker that I might be able to see the treasure that is hiding beneath. And it may be, God, that today I've been living in the echo chamber of my own mind and I surround myself with those who look like me, think like me, talk like me. And maybe if I am to know something more about you, I need more of your creatures who don't look like me, think like me, behave like me, so that I can see more of your character, God. Today, I invite you to move deeply within so that you can move deliberately without. Let's pray together. God, we stop here just long enough to confess to you that we, we really do attempt to do these things, to build our own lives and ignore the beauty of the life that you've already given us from the beginning. Forgive us. Forgive us for the sin of our self-centered vision. Show us this day what it looks like to open our minds and hearts before you that we may see more of you. Show us how to take deliberate steps to move more deliberately within that we may live on purpose and on mission without. Lord, we welcome you to work in somebody's life today. Even, even now, move and transform the heart, the mind of someone to yourself. In Christ's name, amen.